You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is David Craig, a clinical associate professor of communication management at the University of Southern California. David is also an Emmy-nominated producer and TV programming executive, and the author of several books and articles about the digital media industry. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, James. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, so glad that we get to do this. We uh, met, gosh, it's probably been three or four years ago. Yeah. And I've been following your work, and I'm glad we get a chance to finally talk a little bit about your research. Well, I have to thank you. I mean, it was one of more, my more enlightening interviews, and you were so fluent and very helpful, so I couldn't have done this work without the support of you and other industry professionals who really had to explain it like it was one-on-one. Like, this is a ball. This is how this works. It was really <laughs> amazing to get to learn this from you guys. Very good. So how did you originally find your way into the media? entertainment space? I set out to be a Hollywood producer and storyteller at the age of eight. (laughs) I actually saw movies in the classroom and thought this was a great way to teach. So I came to Hollywood to be a teacher. What I soon discovered was the sort of movies that I enjoyed making or I enjoyed watching and learning from were mostly made for television movies. So I spent about three decades making about 30 TV movies. Most of them were based on history or literature or contemporary social issues. Um, And they ended up being um, distributed to schools after they aired with curriculum discussion guides. So I, I ended up achieving what I set out to do to become a teacher in Hollywood. And then over time, I migrated over to becoming a Hollywood teacher by becoming a professor at at USC in Annenberg and finishing up my doctorate. And why the shift to academia? It's interesting that you were able to kind of bring your two passions together. Why did you decide to go into teaching? Well, it was a logical extension of my fundamental goal of being a teacher, but it was also the fact that the TV movie business had changed pretty radically and pretty much collapsed over the time, the two, three decades I was there. Um, And now are there different formats and different ways of doing that sort of teaching, reality shows, documentaries, which are very exciting to see come back into vogue. But TV movies kind of lost their luster and their appeal. And at the same time, I found myself interested in doing research and scholarship, which is another part of being a professor, which I hadn't fully realized until I went back to get my PhD, which led me to the work I'm doing now. Let's talk a bit more about the changes that you witnessed over the two decades you were working in television. What were some of the greatest changes in the entertainment industry during that period? So coming into television when I did, the new media was called cable. And cable was a huge disruptor. And we were um, very uh, fortunate to be able to advance a lot of the same sorts of subject matter and frameworks. TV movies became a driver at that moment for cable industries and cable networks to brand themselves, which was where I was able to take advantage of of that format to continue to teach and and get out social issues and, and particularly deal with topics near and dear to my heart, like LGBTQ rights and social issues. Obviously, with the uh, evolution of these cable networks into more 
more series work, as it became more sustainable, as they got full distribution and were able to then secure greater advertising, TV movies became less reliable, less less of a, a viable form, and series became the key. So we saw HBO shift from a TV movie strategy of the 90s to Sopranos and Sex in the City, and we saw almost all the other cable networks, I was at A&E for 10 years, move further into scripted series and also realize that the end of the day reality series which could be produced for a nickel were actually just as viable and profitable as these expensive TV movies I was making. So that led me to around 2010 and I was still producing my own content at that point and I was approached by USC about teaching as a adjunct faculty, which I thought, oh, that'd be fun. I, the joke I made was by day, I was pitching 20-somethings who didn't think I knew anything. At night, I was teaching 20-somethings who thought I knew everything. <laughs> the truth was around five in the afternoon, usually. But uh, I didn't realize how much I enjoyed teaching until I, I started teaching. I started adding new classes to this program at Annenberg at the School of Communication. They have a master's program in communication management where they it's a professional program designed to to help students break into the industry, many industries, wherever there's communication skills required. But they really allowed me to craft a media and entertainment track that included many new courses that I was interested in teaching, mainly because I was interested in learning. And uh, as that evolved, they offered me a full-time opportunity. I took that as a chance to make this official and went back and got my PhD at the other school across town. And that's when I fell in love with the other side of teaching, which is research and scholarship. Well, let's talk a bit more about the scholarship that you're doing today. So you've written one book, which is The Social Media Entertainment, and now you have two upcoming books. One is about the influencer economy in China, which is pronounced Wang Hong. Am I Wang getting Hong. that correct? Okay, so I'm curious to learn a bit more about that. And you're also working on this collection that brings together a lot of academics who've been studying the social media space, and that's going to be called Creator Culture. Tell me a little bit more about some of the work that you've done and, and the most fascinating things from your research. Bearing in mind that I'm not only an old person, but that I came up through the analog era of media in the 20th century. As a professor of media industries teaching students how to break into industries, I was aware there was something fascinating and different and unique going on over in the YouTuber and Instagram space but I didn't have a clue what that was. About four years ago, I got an email from a colleague in Australia, one of the most distinguished media scholars in the world, Stuart Cunningham, who's written about 14 books in his career. And he asked if I would assist him on a little paper that we were gonna write about YouTubers as the new TV. But I, it became pretty clear after a few interviews that we were never going to be able to write that paper because none of that held up under much scrutiny. So we set aside six weeks and went out and did 40 interviews. And it took us about 20 interviews to understand there was something radically different from what we understood digital and analog media to mean. And then another 40 interviews to start to see certain patterns and themes develop. Now we've conducted over 250 interviews in 10 countries and 25 cities talking to creators from all sorts of diverse um, verticals, game players, beauty influencers, um, personalities, unboxers, the whole gamut um, that operate in video but also images even in text and are all learning how to or intuitively understand what makes these platforms different. We've spoken to numerous platforms and really understood that digital is quite different from social and um, those distinctions have tend to get lost when we go back and forth between those terms. But even the social media platforms themselves are quite different. You can't really compare how YouTube operates to Facebook, to Snap, to Twitch, and, uh, and over in China where they have uh, hundreds of these platforms are all operating with great diversity and distinction. So 
It took us about 100 interviews to realize there's a book here, and uh, it's a pretty dense book that covers many different topics. And so the original thesis was looking at whether or not YouTube would replace TV, and it sounds like you kind of refuted that idea, or through the course of your interviews, you decided that that might not be the case. What were some of the ultimate conclusions you drew from those interviews? The biggest distinction that I would draw is that this is a social industry, not a media industry. The media industries, as we typically describe them, particularly in academia, have been controlled by two means. Controlling distribution, film studios deciding what movies get made, and television networks deciding which programs get aired. The other way of controlling this industry was through intellectual property. Writers, producers, and directors who not only owned the rights but had a piece of the action in terms of exploiting intellectual property across not only these platforms but turning them into plush toys and theme park rides. When we looked over at the social industry, we saw neither of these to be true. The platforms are all open access. Those who have the resources and means and the access to technology are able to create and post content on there. But they weren't creating intellectual property either. They weren't re, um, in any way resembling the sort of, of practices that we saw in media industries. What we also then realized when we started to look more closely at what creators do, and creators, we have many terms for creators, influencers, YouTubers, vloggers, live streamers, game players. Even in China, they have many terms, KOLs, Zubo. We started to understand these were not just content creators. In fact, content creation became almost secondary, or rather the content they created was more social in form, it was content designed to give the illusion of interactivity and that they were playing around and hanging out with people online. The other key practices and skills that we saw creators yielded was extraordinary ability to convert their practice into many business models. In other words, they were not reliant solely on programmatic advertising on YouTube. Obviously, the most lucrative revenue stream is influencer marketing and branded content deals. But Already, in the time we started our research, we were looking at Patreon subscription fees, licensing deals, and converting their social practice into live performance, where they were getting paid literally to leave the house. The third and perhaps the most distinctive thing we saw with creators is that what really drives their value is their ability to aggregate and engage their own fan communities across multiple platforms. So in other words, they may not necessarily be making money by using Twitter or Snap, but they are using those platforms to continue to build and engage a community. And then they convert that community into those many different business models and revenue streams. That was something radically different. And we haven't even seen anything like that in traditional media. And particularly, the closest thing you might compare it to would be somewhere between reality show, people and home shopping network hosts and news broadcasters, but I would, I would caution against making those comparisons completely because these were all creators who had a great deal more control over what their business was um, and almost intuitive understanding of what the platforms do and how they operate differently and prescient awareness of how to make money through many different business models, almost uncanny. Certainly more than I ever did when I was a 22-year-old trying to break into Hollywood. In fact, I think they have more control over their careers than I did when I left Hollywood in my 50s. So. <laughs> well, there's so much there, and I'd love to dissect it a bit more, starting with the topic of distribution, right? Clearly, 
distribution has been completely disrupted by the fact that you have these free-to-use platforms, anyone can create content, reach an audience, monetize that audience at this point. What is the impact of that on the traditional entertainment business? We see consolidation, right? Disney's buying Fox. Some of these companies are seeing diminishing returns or wondering, you know, when's the party going to be over? Is this something that we need to be worried about the existential threat of Netflix? And that's if we're Disney, we're launching Disney+. Plus. And if we are AT&T, we're selling our stake in Hulu and NBC Universal is jockeying for a bigger piece of the action. What is going to happen now that distribution is not at all what it looked like 20 years ago? Right. So the first thing we realize is there's a huge difference between a digital platform or digital media platform and a social media platform. So Netflix, Hulu, and of course, all of these streaming platforms that are going to come into the to the fray and the streaming wars we're, we're entering into right now all operate very much along the logics of media industries they control distribution they dictate what shows get go on to get to go on these platforms and they enter into the traditional IP deals that they've had in the past with many of the same filmmakers storytellers television producers and many of the same formats and genres of content so in many ways what we see is just simply the long-awaited convergence of media industries in and onto these streaming video platforms. In fact, one of our colleagues in academia makes a distinction and calls these portals, they're content portals, that are pretty much managed and operated by the traditional ways in which media industries work, if having the added value of being digital, which means they can go global, but they also have deeper insights into who the viewers and subscribers are. That's an interesting choice in terminology. It's almost comparing a business like Roku today to what Yahoo was in the 90s. That's correct. Huh. But then when we started to look over at the what we call platforms, platforms by their very definition are sites that allow others to build value as well as having value in their own right. So what we saw was um, not just users on these platforms or what we call social media users, but these creators building something quite different, not what we would consider audiences or viewers, readers or listeners, but rather members of their community that they consider to be almost equal in stature. They often don't even refer to them as fans because they find that term a little bit pejorative. And the reality is, is that for every creator who has a huge, vast community, many of the members of their community are creators in their own right, as creators are members of that social community that they've managed to build across these platforms. And in those constructions and in those functions, we see these platforms as very different. And again, each of these social platforms are very different. But there's a lot of debate whether YouTube itself is even a social platform or not. What we realized rather quickly is that there are no such things as YouTubers, because all YouTubers who are generating revenue are multi-platform. Yeah, the lines aren't black and white, right? There's a lot of uh, diversity in terms of how creators make money at this point, the platforms they need to operate on. And even the distinction between is YouTube social, is it an SVOD service or an AVOD platform, right? It's playing in a lot of different areas all at once. We spent a lot of time studying YouTube for that reason because it seemed to sit between both the digital and the social. What we've realized over the past 12 years now of YouTube's development is that they've tried repeatedly to compete with Hollywood, to become another distribution model in many ways emulating it, and repeatedly failed. At the same time, they also failed at competing in social media. They've launched at least five different social media efforts from Orbit, Orbit I forget the original name, to, of course, Google+, Plus, to now their community page, none of which has really helped it manage to compete effectively with its 
Silicon Valley competition down the road. But YouTube, um, even with the repeated attempts through premium, used to be music key, then it turned red, then it turned premium. Now premium is not premium has not been able to achieve its goal of being simultaneously a Hollywood industry and a Silicon Valley industry. It's managed to live within both worlds and spent over 10 years in beta before it actually generated revenue because it had deep pockets. The other topic you mentioned is in traditional Hollywood, there's a focus on developing IP and that's used for consumer products, theme parks, right? All the other areas in which you feed the beast of the traditional entertainment engine. We're not seeing that today in social media. Do you think that will change? We see creators, you know, advertising other people's brands. Some are even getting savvy enough to create their own products. Do you think ultimately we're going to see intellectual property and, and future franchises being built out of social media? So coming from an advertising perspective, the lines are pretty blurred between IP and just any kind of brand out there. And you might even describe these as more personality brands that are converting their own identity into IP in a way. But we see this as somewhat more complicated than that. Again, the value lies in their ability to harness and aggregate and engage their fan community, which is quite different and turns it into many revenue streams that aren't IP centric. So what do you call IP when people are out there drawing people into live events, getting selling out 86 city tours in half an hour like Tyler Oakley? Um, what do we call that sort of IP model when you look at branded content ID or game live streaming, which is built on someone else's IP? We find the IP framework fairly limited in fully understanding the distinction of these creators from traditional producers, writers, and directors. Let's talk a bit more about your work with China's Wang Hong industry. How does Western social media influencer culture differ from that of these Asian key opinion leaders and what's happening in China specifically? So a little background. Um, not only have I been incredibly fortunate by teaching a number of Chinese students, some of the best Chinese students I think in the world in my program at USC, but I'm also on the faculty at a university in China called Shanghai Jiao Tong, which is one of the top universities in the Institute for Creative and Cultural Industries. Both of these have afforded me the access and means to watch this alternative industry grow. As you know, in China, they don't allow our platforms to enter. In many ways, it's not just a form of censorship. It's a form of protection for the fact that they've been able to then promote and protect and grow their own platforms. And we're talking about um, not only massively capitalized platforms known as the BATS, which is Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, but the proliferation of a much more competitive platform landscape. At one point, there were over 300 successful live streaming platforms alone. Name five here in the West. <laughs> That's just an indication of the fact that they have a much uh, more complex, uh, more competitive, and more uh, rapidly evolving platform landscape. On these platforms, we found creators operating with slight differences and many more sustainable practices. For example, the platforms have better integration of their online payment services. This allows for not only much easier ways to collect on virtual gifts, so the whole, you know, what we used to see over, we'll still see on Twitch, but better integration with e-commerce platforms. So imagine if YouTube and Facebook were also Amazon. These platforms operate similarly. So much that the ability for a creator in any vertical to promote their own e-commerce store, which is called Tmall or Taobao, allows them to generate so much more revenue and create a far more sustainable business than anything we've seen outside of China. 
So in many ways, the um, creators, which have, again, these other names, KOLs, Wong Hong, Tzu Bo, there are a few others, are more sustainable, more advanced, more have greater opportunities. There's another key difference here is that part of the Chinese platform and media policy and tech policy has been around trying to advance China's economy into what's called a digital economy, very much moving aggressively into the digital and social space to learn how to create and advance a consumption-based economy much more quickly than we've ever witnessed in history. They've got 1.3 billion people to do it. And that means, um, whereas in the West, we're still wrestling with what platforms mean and particularly anxious about the political ramifications of what platforms are doing, but also the economic issues. The fact is we have mature media industries, mature advertising industries that are threatened by these platforms and are pushing back and fighting very hard. In China, they are throwing gasoline on the fire. They can't wait for these platforms to get even stronger and more powerful. We're now witnessing the success of Chinese platforms outside of China. The best example is a company called ByteDance, which I'm sure you've heard of. ByteDance has been very successful at launching multi-platforms inside China that feature creators driving a lot of the engagement. But now they have bought or launched outside of China, including TikTok, which is the fastest growing social media platform in the last two years. So we're rapidly seeing China go from an alternative, if isolated, industry to now a rapidly competing industry, particularly with these tech industries and platforms going head-to-head with our Western, mostly U.S.-based platforms. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there as well. I guess let's start with ByteDance because it's probably the example that most Western listeners are familiar with. They acquired Musical.ly, they had another service, TikTok, ended up merging the two. It's kind of heralded as one of the largest startups in the world. I think it has a valuation of north of $3 billion U.S. dollars. Are there other successful efforts like ByteDance that are being exported from China to other parts of APAC and potentially other parts of the world? Correct. Um, there's a company called Kuaixiu, which is the second fastest growing tech company in China. And Kuaixiu has the number one platforms in India and the fastest growing platforms in Russia. It's important to understand, though, that they are not the same platforms. What they've managed to do is create dual platforms that probably have some crossover on the back end. But when it comes to creating content and, and expanding their platform services outside the country, they've had to operate under a separate kind of platform model. So, for example, with ByteDance, TikTok in the West is not the same as TikTok in China, which is also known as Douyin. There are some slight differences in what you can and cannot do on those platforms, particularly since China is more traditional in terms of the kinds of content that they will permit, which is why they've banned certain types of practices across these platforms that we wouldn't necessarily worry about here. Like one example is eating fruit in a seductive way. The other platform to mention is Tencent has a live streaming platform called Bigo Live, which is outside of and deliberately meant to succeed outside of China. What's curious about Bigo Live is that it's run up against um, cultural policy issues in other countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, which are starting to become more conservative and more religious in their in their political ideas. And so um, the irony is, is Bigo Live would never work in China because of the sort of content that exists. And now it's starting to get banned in other countries because it allows certain content. But it's part of Tencent's tech machine, which is multiple platforms that serve many different communities and many different interests. So the political dimension to this question is fascinating, right? Here in the U.S., we are wrestling with the fact that, you know, there's issues of data privacy and data breaches, certainly in the case of Facebook. At the same time, 
Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for breaking up the monopolistic power of some of these tech companies, specifically Facebook with the acquisition of Instagram, targeting what Amazon and, and Google are doing as well. What do you think about the political dimension to these problems? So this is exactly where our work is pivoted to in the moment. We're very concerned about what are the challenges and problems that are being caused by platforms and we're very adamant that we need to see some form of better regulation. It's obviously much more complicated because these platforms are global. So the EU can pass things like the Data Prevention Act and Article 13, but these don't necessarily affect everywhere else outside of the EU, but will have a direct impact on what happens to creators. Again, to reiterate, we think platforms need to be regulated, both better self-regulated in terms of how they govern themselves, more transparency and more deliberate attempts to try to you know, prevent these scandals that keep happening over and over again. If I hear another apology by them, I'm going to throw something at my screen. But um, what's lost in the what we call tech clash that's occurring here is any reference to the fact that there are now tens of millions of Americans as well as, as conceivably hundreds of millions of people around the world creating value on these platforms. And these creators are not into any of these debates. They never come up in front of these policy hearings. They never get referenced in um, a lot of the regulatory um, regimes. If anything, there's two things that have occurred. Platforms, in order to try to avoid getting regulated, have cracked down by passing the buck on to creators. We saw this with the first apocalypse, which was now two years ago, which never got fully resolved. But now we've entered into the second adpocalypse around children's content that has just shut down any of the ability of these child-based creators and their family-run businesses to engage with their community on some of these platforms like YouTube. Not only are they passing the buck on to creators who then bear the brunt of a lot of the backlash, but um, there are new laws and policies that have been implemented that in many ways target creators more so than even traditional media celebrities. So you look at, for example, the transparency guidelines or the COPA laws, which we think are incredibly important about making sure this is a safe space for young people and that there's more transparency about what's branded content versus what's not branded content. But nonetheless, if you were to look at what influencers and creators have to do to be transparent about the, their branded content deals, there's nothing like it in legacy media. There's no prohibition around any sort of public intellectual or celebrity from wearing and promoting and touting brands and content in every appearance that they make. We're not suggesting that there shouldn't be transparency. We're just suggesting that it seems to almost more target these creators without little recognition of the value that they're bringing. But there's another part of this equation, and I won't take up too much time, but these are not just entrepreneurs, which is important. They are. They're sophisticated and they're social entrepreneurs, which is quite different from other forms of media entrepreneurship. They're also cultural producers. Whether you agree with the type of culture they represent, whether you care for what Jake and Logan Paul represent culturally, conversely, if you care about what Tyler Oakley and, and Lily Singh represent, they are identifying and, and expressing forms of culture that in many ways we've never witnessed before. For 100 years, we've complained about the gatekeepers in legacy media, now in digital media, who limit what stories get told, who get to appear in those stories, who gets to tell those stories, and who those stories are made for. Now, over in this space, we see that in many ways, diverse, multicultural, progressive-leaning creators 
are some of the most successful in this space. Another example I'll give is the tragedy around the Parkland teens. In their interviews, they mentioned that when they would go home after school, they'd watch Philip DeFranco. Well, in many ways, what they've managed to do is harness the social media strategies and civic-mindedness of Philip DeFranco to then go out and champion what are now over 30 laws that have been passed around gun control. This is an expression of their culture, their values, their identity, ideology, that has in many ways been modeled by what the creators are already doing in the space. You have Hank and John Green and their Project for Awesome and many other efforts like their Internet Creators Guild to advocate on behalf of creators. You've got Markiplier, who's probably one of the world's most successful game players in the world, has been running annual events to promote various social causes that are near and dear to him. The best example is for, that I think of is Jerome Jarret. Probably the biggest Snapchat star ever, at least the first, that just completely blew up out of nowhere, who's launched Hashtag Love Army, which has raised tens of millions of dollars for global crises, Rohingya refugees, Somalian famine sufferers, earthquake victims in, in Mexico. But then he's gone into those communities and helped teach them how they can own and create and produce and raise awareness around their own culture and profit from it directly. To me, that's a radical shift out there that doesn't get mentioned nearly enough in a lot of the backlash that we're witnessing. It speaks to the power of social media as a tool to both magnify the greatest behavior that the humans exhibit, as well as some of the terrible tendencies, right? And that's where you need that regulation, you need the oversight from a political standpoint, but also from a self-regulation standpoint, as you alluded to. What is the responsibility that creators have in this? So we think there's three forms of creator regulation that is already in many ways operating. As I mentioned, there is forms of state-based regulatory control, and platforms themselves regulate a lot of this behavior. To be honest, there's four. The third is advertisers are also regulating behavior because advertisers are not interested in going into non-brand safe environments, which is why PewDiePie can have 80 million subscribers, but he's not making nearly as much money as Ninja or Markiplier who have 20 million because they provide a much more brand safe environment. But the fourth model that we see that doesn't get nearly enough mention is the way in which communities themselves also regulate creators. Creators who violate the norms, the values, the interests, the affinities of their own community, more often than not, are brought down by their very own community. There's a delicate, sometimes very precarious relationship between the creators and the communities. And there are continued attempts to be scandalous and broach subject matter and and take advantage of their community will not go very well. But I want to be very clear, we do believe creators need to be effectively regulated and need to be um, in many ways aware of the fact that they take on a huge responsibility by harnessing the power of these platforms. But we also want to see greater forms of creator advocacy. We think that it's important that you not only crack down and police and regulate what creators do, but that you advocate for creators who are doing good, who are making a vital contribution to the world, who are representing sets of interests and cultures that we've never witnessed before. And that creator advocacy is starting to occur curiously outside of the U.S. You have um, things like Skip Ahead in Australia, which is helping creators be more successful, particularly over in the scripted side. You have something like Funk, which was in Germany, which is um, about helping to fuel and support German language creators. But there's also advocacy work that needs to happen. We're starting to witness 
some of the creators organize. And we think that's important, particularly in the week where we're watching the WGA and the Writers Guild suing each other. When we're looking at the scale of this industry, and we don't have great data about the scale of the creator industry globally because we're looking across many markets, platforms, verticals, and multiple revenue streams. But we have evidence that as much as 10% of the US workforce is making money off of social media platforms. They may be making pennies, and some of them may be making very lucrative careers. When 10% of the workforce are using these platforms to generate revenue, we're looking at the future of work. And we need to have some mechanisms in place to make sure that that future is positive, progressive, supportive, and opened to new forms of representation and new forms of entrepreneurship. Absolutely. On that note of leveraging social media as this vehicle for creating social change, you mentioned you've been very actively involved throughout your career in the LGBTQ social movement, right? From serving as an early board member for GLAAD to producing several LGBT-themed TV movies and plays, and now you serve on the board and jury of the Social Impact Media Awards. How, in your view, has media played a role in advancing social justice for the LGBTQ community? Well, amongst uh, the many surprises that we found in our research was not only the extraordinary ability of Asian Americans for the last 10 years now to be very prominent in this space across every vertical, from Michelle Phan to Zach King to even Ryan Higa and Markiplier. But um, it was of particular interest to me to see how LGBTQ creators have been at the very forefront of dictating not only what are the creator models of success, but able to harness and access their community in ways that I never had the means or ability to do as a producer or an activist. Um, and this is being recognized by the uh, LGBTQ social movement already. The Advocate had Tyler and Cat Black and Gigi Gorgeous on their cover. The Trevor Project and um, HRC have given awards to these creators. I believe Hannah Hart is on the board of GLAAD, which is in and of itself pretty compelling and telling. And what these creators have understood, probably more than any other subculture that we have looked at yet, course, there's just such great breadth and diversity, is that they weren't just cultural producers and they weren't just commercial entrepreneurs, but they were role models and that they had a responsibility to that community. So whether they were out online or whether they came out at the height of their career, which was a huge risk, I think of the fact that Ingrid Nielsen was already a ambassador for Clairol. And she risked all of that by coming out, admitting that she's a lesbian which is a huge burden to imagine when coming out itself is already such a difficult, challenging thing to achieve. Then we saw something quite unusual in the way Joey Graceffa went about doing it, which was he came out by appearing in a music video that he wrote and starred in and produced on the eve of releasing his memoir, which became a bestseller. Well, that's a, a coming out process I've never witnessed before. But what we were also seeing is, is that there's a rapid transition from their coming out to seeing themselves not just as role models, but in the forefront of political activity. So Joey, Gigi, Tyler, Hannah, all of these creators rapidly understood that they needed to align themselves with some of the organizations in the movement and start really advocating on behalf of what are still a whole host of concerns that the LGBTQ social movement has, particularly as we've seen the awareness around trans issues come into play. 
So they are the vanguard of the activists now in the LGBTQ social movement, while simultaneously generating careers and businesses off of these communities that they've been able to engage. Their stories are incredibly powerful, and it's a testament to the fact that social media has connected people that otherwise wouldn't have had a chance to meet, right? And so someone in a small town who feels different or is going through a process of discovering themselves and their identity and ultimately coming out could have been a much more challenging thing in the past, and now they feel supported by advocacy efforts of some of these top creators, the examples that these influencers can can give to them. It's a really incredible thing. It's amazing to see it, especially outside of the country, because we have a tend to have a, uh, a focus on the U.S. LGBTQ social movement. But it's important to remember that outside of the U.S. and in roughly half the countries in the world, being gay is either a taboo actually criminalized and in some instances can lead to death as we've just seen with the laws in Brunei. So there's an extraordinary amount of risk to even align yourself and allow yourself to become a member of a creator community that is focused around LGBTQ identity. And there was something really startling if not exhilarating that happened in China recently. And LGBTQ creators have become very successful in China, as have um, LGBTQ platforms. In fact, there are dozens of meetup apps and and dating apps. And as you know, uh, I'm sure you're aware, Grindr is owned by a Chinese um, company. This has started to transform LGBTQ identity in China in ways that are difficult to contain. So recently, um, the uh, Weibo, which is kind of a version of Twitter, only even more advanced and more sophisticated, announced that all LGBTQ content had to be taken down. And this occurred on a Friday. Over that weekend, millions of people on Weibo posted LGBTQ content in protest. And by Monday morning, Weibo said, sorry, never mind, we made a mistake. And the state came out and said, we never asked them to do that. That was a misunderstanding of our cultural policies. We see this as a huge step forward, particularly in a country that, while not criminalized, LGBTQ content is still pretty taboo and forbidden from traditional media. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the social media space, what would they be? Well, the first is the increasing level of competition between the China and the West and in both directions. Increasingly, Amazon is trying to emulate some of the same e-commerce models on Twitch that China has, uh, although I don't think they've managed to, to do it quite as successfully. Again, there's still a lot of what you might call drag because the other industries are still so solvent and so successful. Obviously, the backlash, the ongoing fissures between the values of the European Union around these platforms versus the US, which tends to take a more hands-off approach, and then of course China, and what they're allowing their platforms to succeed at doing while not having any say or intervention over what the platforms are doing outside of China. And I think the, the third, hopefully, is a rising awareness that our understanding of what creators represent and what they do, it goes well beyond just a bunch of kids acting out and that there's a much more diverse and broader understanding of what creators are capable of. Some examples I would give is the way in which there are rural Indian housewives who've never made money in their lives, making more money than anyone in their community by sharing their cooking recipes, their families' cooking recipes that would have otherwise died with them and now reaching global audiences. We've interviewed South African creators um, who are 
interested in promoting Southern African culture, not in response to the depictions of Africa in Western media, but more in response to the fact that Nigerian media is perceived as African media or Pan-African media. And in fact, there's a huge uh, array of differences and a great deal more diversity in African culture than we've ever seen before. Perhaps the most fascinating recent data that we got, or, or rather interview that we did, was a um, the most success, some of the most successful Arab creators are actually based in Dearborn, Michigan. That's not only because it's the second largest Arab community outside of the Arabian Peninsula, but because they're obviously able to use these platforms in ways they might otherwise not be allowed in these more uh, restrictive cultures and communities. But they also curiously represent a, a different type of Arab culture than, than we not only see in the West, obviously, but um, throughout Arab media itself. Arab media hasn't really necessarily advanced youth culture, and it's a very vibrant and diverse culture. And so these young 22-year-old beauty vloggers are not only sharing their lives and their interests as young Arab women, but find themselves situated within these incredibly challenging global debates around gender and faith and religion and politics that in many ways are, are extraordinary burdens and responsibilities that young people are having to bear for what is clearly a huge array of global tensions and, and struggles that we're all facing. So hopefully as the third thing to see in the future is a, a deeper, richer understanding of what creators bring to us in terms of value economically and culturally. At least that's what we hope for. That's the goal. One of the questions I ask everyone who comes on the show, and you'll have a bit of a different take on this, but uh, if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? I would um, understand that it's a multi-platform business, multi-business model business, and that the core value is around engaging their community in the most effective ways. And these strategies that you need to achieve all of those are constantly changing and evolving. So be prepared to move quickly, to move smartly, to understand that any strategy that works today might not work in six months. And bake into your career goals, sort of embrace of change, embrace of rapid change, uh, risk, uh, um, a, a greater risk model. And the best, I think the best quote I heard was Hannah Hart at VidCon who said, you don't build a mansion in someone else's backyard. It's a classic quote. And understand for you to own and operate your own creator um, business is to be fully aware of what control you do have and what control you don't. Absolutely. David, where can people find out more about you and more about your work? So our work obviously resides right now in this book, although we've published a lot of journal articles. We've also written a number of op-eds, particularly around these issues around creators and regulations, so you can find this there. Um, obviously at USC Annenberg, I have a website. We do have a website that is mostly academic-leaning for our colleagues. And we have also, just to plug, we have a conference that we've organized in Washington, D.C. at the end of May about creator rights and regulation. It's really meant to bring together creators, platform executives, policymakers, and academics and activists to start to understand that this is a very complex uh, ecology and we, we need to uh, 
also recognize creators have rights too. Definitely. What's the name of the conference? Creator Governance. There we go. It's very academic. Creator so Governance in DC in May. In and May, how can May. people attend, get tickets, find out more? Um, if they go to socialmediaentertainment.net, they'll see a link to it. And then they can email me and let me know if they're interested in attending. We'd really love to get some creators there. It's great for them to hear firsthand from creators about the sort of struggles they're having, both from platform and policy concerns and the sort of rights that they would love to see being promoted and obtained. Fantastic. Well, I encourage everyone to check out your book, Social Media Entertainment, and stay tuned for the upcoming publications uh, next year and in 2021. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's fantastic to have your perspective on these issues, uh, particularly what's happening in the rest of the world, thinking through the Chinese influencer economy and the evolutions in social media, the impact of politics and the cultural transformation that lies therein. So thank you again. This has been terrific. I really appreciate it. I got to say, I just find so much reward from your podcast. You bring on the guests who are really the sort of people, in many ways, you're conducting the interviews that I would have been conducting, but you go ahead and do them for us. I, I got to say, we need to be citing your podcast interviews in our next set of research because it's so valuable to us what you're doing, these insider tales of, of all the struggles and all the challenges and all the opportunities in this space. So thank you. Well, thank you. That means the world to me, and I'm glad you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.